0: The Global Recon Podcast.
1: Here are your hosts,
2: John from Global Recon, and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Fieldcraftsurvival.com, GlobalRecon.net. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover, Fieldcraft. We have a good episode for you guys today. We conducted two separate interviews, one with Nate, who is the team leader at Rucking Raiders. And the Rucking Raiders are marching 700-plus miles in honor of their fallen uh, Marsock brothers who were killed last year in a training accident, along with uh, four Army National Guardsmen. And, and then we'll get into more details in the interview. And then after that, we have the, the very special privilege and honor of having Mike Stahl, uh, a MACV SOG operator from Vietnam, who And Mike was a 1-0 a or a team leader for Recon Team Michigan, and he ran Recon in Laos and Cambodia for a couple of years until uh, so he was wounded, and then he got a medical discharge. So we are going to host a webinar, and the webinar is going to be a course of Mike teaching you guys the survival mindset. And Mike has done this for a number of years as he spent, you know, over a, a decade in special operations. And he, he's done a lot of research and things like that in the survival realm. So if you want to opt in for this webinar, it's a paid webinar. Send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And in the subject line, just type webinar. And once you do that, we're going to email you guys all the information for the webinar uh the price and and how the course is going to uh set so with that being said now we're going to play the interview that we had with Nate from Rucking Raiders and then afterwards we'll play the interview with Mike Stahl. Hey, what's up everybody? Right now me and Mike are on with Nate from Rucking Raiders. So, we had Nate on a few episodes ago before His organization started on this long uh, memorial ruck march. So on March 10th, 2015, a UH UH-60 crashed in Navarre, Florida, killing four Army National Guardsmen and seven Marine Raiders. One year later, on March 11th, 2016, a group of Marine Raiders ruck marched from the location of the crash 770 miles back to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where the Marines were based. So I'm going to hand it over to Mike. And Mike and Nate are going to talk a little more about this.
0: Hey, everybody! It's Mike from Philcraft. Uh, thanks, John, for setting that up. And then uh, Nate, thanks for having on, or right, thanks for being on again. Um, are you, you got good comms with us?
3: Yeah, they can yeah.
0: Hell yeah, man! It's been a, it's been a long journey so far, man. So, uh, updating the listeners, let's let's talk about uh, where you at right now. And how many more miles do we have to go to uh, the completion?
3: Sure. So uh, up to this point, we only have 4.4 miles left. So as part of our plan, uh, being conservative in nature, we had a day and a half built in to, uh, you know, a lot for any, you know, weather or traffic, uh, traffic jams, anything that, that maybe cause would cause us to have to divert our route. To delay our arrival, so uh, we had a holding area which is uh, Stump Sound Park and Sneeds Ferry, it's kind of close to our base. Uh, so we ended at that location at about 540 this morning, um, on March 20th. So we are all at home right now, resting up, licking our wounds, and we're meeting back up on. Tomorrow morning at March 21st, um, and we're going to ruck that last 4.4 miles back to our base, and uh, it's going to be all the Marines that rucked, and we're also inviting you know, individuals that weren't able to make it due to work constraints, and they're going to be walking with us for this last leg.
0: So what what time does that kick off, and what time do you expect it to index at MARSOC headquarters?
3: We're kicking off at 09.30 and, uh, we're anticipating arriving no later than 11 o'clock. It's, it's going to be a little bit slower than, you know, any of our other rucks Cause we're going to have family members, uh, pushing strollers, people carrying babies, you know, we're not, we're not going on a ruck run. We're, we're simply, you know, making sure that it's an enjoyable experience, you know, for all the people that are coming out to join us.
0: So seven, 700 plus miles, man. And, and that's a you know, for, for people who aren't in special operations or kind of the community, um, you know, that's something we do all the time. Long range movements with a rook. That's kind of like the staple of our job. That's like a common core task. How many miles were you guys averaging per day? And were you guys going seven days a week the entire time?
3: We were going 24 seven, um, as a whole within 24 hours, um, our guys were going about 88 miles per day. Um, the way we were broken down is we had seven teams and each team was associated with, with about 13 miles per leg you know but there was times where guys were doing two legs a day you know racking up you know some serious mileage within a 24 hour period.
0: the uh, you know I know you had a lot of support from the communities that you went through and then external communities who who came in to support you guys. Did you guys actually have people that were with you rucking the entire way? Or was it just uh as you picked them up when you went through certain towns or was it just a combination of, of the two?
3: Well we had a core group of guys that did every leg. Um and they were with us from a couple of days before the ruck march. Until now, you know, here we are about to end tomorrow. Um, on top of that, though, we did have interactions with all the different military bases along the way. Um, as far as I know, we had individuals from every branch of service except for the Coast Guard. So, um, as we went past different bases, like we went past uh, Herbert Field, we had you know individuals from. Special Forces and CCT come and join us. And then as we made our way through Panama City, we had some of the sailors and Marines from the different dive school courses in Panama City. Um, And then we kept moving up north. We go through uh, near Moody Air Force Base. We had some airmen come out there. Once we get towards Fort Stewart, we had um, guys from 3rd ID uh, come out, and then um, we went through Beaufort and Paris Island. So, obviously, there's was, there was a handful of Marines that came out and rucked with us for that. And, um, you know, now that we're about to finish at Camp Lejeune, you know, we do anticipate, you know, quite a few guys coming out. But we, we're trying to kind of keep our our footprint somewhat small. We don't want to have, like, the, the Forrest Gump effect where we got 3,000 people coming down the road, you know. So, uh, tomorrow – you know, we we do anticipate you know upwards of a, you know 100 200 guys walking with us, and uh, you know we hope we don't get higher than that. But uh, you know, it's it just been overwhelmingly positive support. I mean, the thing this thing went viral, and we we weren't even really anticipating it being that big.
0: Is there is there because uh, you know when I think about just that the experience, just hearing about it humbles me that you guys are doing these. these long range movements for your brothers. Um, Is there anything for you as an individual that stood out um, along the way um, as, you know, whether it was an uh, individual experience or something that you saw uh, that kind of, you know, brought things to, I don't know, to light, to, to realize what you were doing was, was having an impact and an effect.
3: So there's a couple instances that stand out to me as, as some of the, you know, I guess highlights of my memories from this whole thing. And, you know, one of those was our rock team. We were in the middle of nowhere. We didn't see houses. We didn't see lights. We couldn't even tell if we were going up or down because it was the middle of the night and we just had headlamps on and our legs were hurting. So we, we think we were going uphill. But, um, I remember we were listening to Pandora and we were just all alone for hours. And I took, um, I took a picture of us, and posted it up on Instagram and within seconds there was over 300 likes and to think that you, you feel so alone in this desolate area and that you've posted one little update and just to see people are like please tell us where you're at please update us you know that that is a, a just an indescribable feeling to know that that people are like that supportive of you that they're 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 literally up at three o'clock in the morning like, oh he posted something. That blew my mind. Another thing, we were going through uh near near Paris Island in in Buford and there was this nursing home on the side of the road. It was a pretty nice nursing home. I imagine it was a bunch of, you know, retired Marines, you know, and retired Marines spouses and stuff like that. We're rucking down the road and these nurses are pushing pushing all these you know, elderly women out to the road, and um, you know that that kind of moved me. You know, my my grandmother died last year, and, and she was in a similar situation like that, to where you know there's not there's not a lot going on during the day. You know, so to think that they were like, oh, are the marines here yet today? I don't know, and and and, and that they they got wheeled out just to give us a Gatorade. I mean that. For some reason, just really, it really affected me a lot. To, to to think that there was people looking forward to us coming through their communities, that meant a lot to all, a lot of the Ruckers and the family members. You know, for them to be able to find a little bit of you know a glimmer of hope towards the future in in this you know horrible time frame, which you know one one year out from the initial accident there's a there's a lot of grief associated with that so for them to to be getting these same feelings that i'm describing right now is, is priceless and, and and that's what made this ruck march so worth it
0: two two amazing great examples of uh kind of i figure like the you know the mindset and the support that you get uh from the community and and it's a uh, you know when, when you when you go through something like that, like as part of the grieving process, right? You after that's done, you kind of wanna. I know in special operations, especially, uh, live through and continue to drive on with your career and 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 talk about them, the men that they were, and it kind of like continues their legacy and continues their their memory. When you're walking and you're rucking and you have nothing but time to think about uh, the seven Marines that you guys lost, um, was it like therapy for you guys? I mean, did it, did it, it, is it something that that gave you kind of peace or is this just something that, um, you know, that you're going to continue to do uh, annually to, to allow their legacy to live on? I mean, what's, what's the process um, well, going, moving forward kind of?
3: Well, when you're rucking, and I think that anyone that's ever put a ruck on and gone an extended period of time, they do find a little bit of you know meditation occurs while you're rucking, yeah, it hurts your traps are on fire, your calves are on fire, you know if you're in the mountains, obviously there's a whole level of suck added on top of that, but to a certain extent it it's just you and your thoughts and your pain, and um I know for me. It's therapeutic because, and I think that, you know, most of us in this community, we don't really talk about the way we feel. Um, and I think it isn't until you're in a you have a little bit of pain in your body and you're with your brothers. That's when you start to kind of take the wrapper off and you actually start to talk about your feelings. I remember, you know, a couple of times, you know, the other people that I was rocking with, you know, they would start laughing and they would just start telling a story about you know something that they had remembered from one of the guys that that had died on the helicopter accident, just random stuff and and to think that you know that thought could come up in something that most people most people would think that you know we're off our rocker, putting on a ruck and going that far, but to think that while doing that, we still you know, found the ability to, to remember, you know, the, I guess, the better times, you know, definitely offered a lot of, uh, I guess, healing to the guys that participated in the RUC.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, I, I appreciate you what you guys did, man. And on just every single social media platform that me and John follow, I mean, you guys are all over the place and and it, it, it all... Paid homage to you know the memory and sacrifice of those guys that were lost, uh, including the, the you know the aviation crew that was lost in the bird as well, and mm-hmm. uh, just just you know from just from me just you know as a former special forces guy I just appreciate your service and thank you for everything you do and uh, um, wish you guys the best and and, and hope tomorrow um, closing out uh, would just allow you know for especially for the family members that are involved give them some kind of peace of mind to, you know, you know, some kind of closure maybe to move forward and, and, uh, grow stronger from that experience.
3: Yeah. Thanks brother. Thanks for your service. And thanks for all the stuff that you guys do. And, uh, you know, all the good stuff you guys put up all the time. i, I follow you guys as well on Instagram.
2: So, uh, you know, keep up the good word.
0: Thanks man. Hey John, you want to close it out?
2: Yeah. Uh, thanks Nate. And, uh, we appreciate you coming on and, <clears throat> At the end of the episode, we'll drop your social media handles and website for anyone who wants any more information or anyone who wants to reach out to you guys uh, for any reason. So, Nate, uh, you know, once again, we appreciate you coming on and, and we'll talk to you soon, bro.
3: Yeah, brother. Thank you.
0: Yeah, we appreciate you having Nate on. What You know, it's what an honor and sacrifice that those guys, you know, rucking 700 miles for those guys. Like he like he mentions, some people think they're off the rocker because of what they're doing, but for them, it's nothing. You know, rucking long range movements for special operations is is kind of what we do. But the sacrifice they, that they made, uh, it wasn't the rucking; it's it's the attention that it brings to the the legacy of the the men that you know were members of MARSOC and the, the National Guardsmen who lost their lives in the training accident uh, accidents. You know, even even men and women killed in combat are dehumanized by the media because they're called numbers, they're short blurs. But for them to rug 700 miles and and honor them as you know human beings and you know warriors in MARSOC it, what, was the key point, and it, it brought a lot of attention to to MARSOC and and kind of what they do and their mission set. And we appreciate everything that Nate Nate has done and that MARSOC does for our country. Um, the Raiders are an important element to special operations and defending our nation, and we appreciate that. Moving on, we're uh, going to have John and and Mike Stahl, who's a member of uh, MACV SOG, uh, the Studies and Observation Group from Vietnam. Look, my, my whole entire career was based and uh, bred in reading books on uh, SOG in Vietnam. Uh, the Studies and Observation Group, you know, classified organization at the time that did cross border operations um, in Vietnam, were a, a joint element of SEALs, um, Special Forces Operators, um, CIA, um, and still a lot of classified elements of those. Uh, that organization as a whole still exist. But to have him on, uh, a, a living member of MACV SOG, is an honor and privilege and uh, how I got my start in special operations was reading books on Mac B. Sog by John plaster called Sog and another book called sniper and to have him on here, just like, you know, the late, the last generation of, of, uh, world war two warriors who fought for this country. It's important for us to have these guys on to tell their stories and, and, and to further, you know develop and mentor uh the next generation of warriors. So we'll go to that interview with John right now.
2: Hey, what's up everybody? Uh, on this episode, uh we have the pleasure of having two special guests on. Uh one is Army Special Forces retired Sergeant First Class Mike Saul. And Mike is a two-year veteran of the Vietnam War and during his second tour from August 1969 to August 1970. He was with Mac V. Sog, where he was both running Recon as a one zero, which is a team leader, and doing other uh, tasks uh, which was needed for the the efforts, and he'll talk about that later on in the episode. And we also have Jason Economos on, and Jason is a author and a, a Vietnam expert, which he hates being called. So Jason wrote a book called Gentle Propositions." which is uh, about Mac V. Sog and it was a very good book. And if you checked out my website, I put up a book review on the book, and I recommend anyone read it. And at the end of the episode, we're going to post links and um, social media handles for Jason and Mike on their websites and stuff like that. So so I'm going to give you a quick intro to Mac V. Sog and then I'll hand it over. So Mac V. Stag was the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. It was a highly classified, multi-service United States Special Operations Unit, which conducted covert, unconventional warfare operations prior to and during the Vietnam War. So, in Jason's book, Gentle Propositions, he, had, he interviewed a lot of SOG operators for his book, which made it very interesting because everything down to very small details are accurate and and that's part of uh, what makes it a great book. So, Jason, can you talk a little bit about your book?
4: Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Um, glad to be here uh, finally with you guys, John, and uh, good to talk to you again, Mike. Um, I spent uh, I spent about a decade researching and interviewing and writing general propositions, and um, it I, I researched everything you you, you can't even imagine. From the inside of the cockpits of uh, of aircraft to um, to the intricate operations of, of various small arms, all kinds of stuff. Not just how the units were organized and how they fought, how they trained, how they lived with each other. Uh, it, it's it's an ongoing process, and um, I it's it's fascinating to me even still after all this time. All right, so Jason,
2: so I know. You, you've you've gotten the opportunity to talk to some of these SOG operators over the, the course of your research. Um, and then we have the opportunity of having Mike Stahl on and Mike ran recon in Vietnam. So Mike, can, can you give like an introduction and talk about, you know, when you joined the army and then talk about, uh, what you did leading up to getting into Mac V SOG?
1: Uh, sure, John. And, and, uh, also, thanks for having me on. It's, it's a, a great honor to be here and a pleasure to spread the word about these little-known operations of some very, very brave men. Uh, I enlisted in the Army in 1962, well before Vietnam was even on the map. Uh, I was living in Florida. The Cuban Missile Crisis was going on. I was 17. I dropped out of high school in Uh, Guys of my generation were very, very patriotic because of all the uh, World War II stuff we got to see on television, so it just seemed the right thing to do and go and enlist. Uh, Of course, that never went anywhere, and I ended up becoming a parachute rigger, uh, volunteered for language school and learned to speak Arabic, and uh, through my sport parachuting activities, I met a special forces recruiter, uh, Gordon Mike McPherson, damn fine man. And uh, he convinced me that uh, I needed to be in special forces. So I went to training group, uh, became an 11F, an operations and intelligence sergeant, did my first tour in Vietnam with an A-team and then worked some on a C-team right down the street from CCN, Command and Control North, the SOG unit that was headquartered out of Da Nang. Got to know those guys. And I said, this is what I want to do. This is what I got into special forces for went back to the States for German language. Uh, they tried to send me to the 10th. Um, I volunteered to go back to Nam and found my way back into CCN
2: and Da Nang. So what, what was that process like for you to actually get into uh, Mac V SOG? Was there, I, I, from what I understand, it's something that kind of happens in Vietnam. Like you get there and you, get, and you volunteer and then you get assigned. Is that how it worked?
1: Uh, For me, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, when I went over my second tour, a lot of SFers weren't even getting into SF units anymore because the war was technically winding down. Uh, But uh, those of us that had been there before knew the ropes. So uh, getting to Cameron Bay, I had no trouble getting to Natrang. And again, I walked right into personnel and I said, hey, I want to be assigned to CCN. Uh, they looked at my background. Uh, I had combat experience. I had some baubles, uh, you know, that I had earned my first tour. So I was an actual candidate. Uh, when I got to, uh, Da Nang, uh, got my briefing. I told them I want to run recon, but they needed an intel sergeant on the launch team. So, uh, that's how I ended up doing paperwork for a while before I actually got back down
2: to Da Nang and, and got to go out in the field and run recon. So, uh, And I know, Jason, this is something you're familiar with. Uh, What exactly are the launch teams? And and can you just talk a little bit about how that worked and and why it was necessary?
4: Sure. Um, I think um, it it varies. Even though you have uh, three sister compounds that are organically in appearance like the same, and by those I'm talking about command and control north, central, and south, they, they maintained various launch sites at each of these different compounds. In other words, CCN had uh, uh, two different launch sites in close proximity, and what they would do is the teams would, would receive a mission, uh, a warning order. They would train for that mission, and they would present a back briefing to, to the S-3 and the S-2, which is intelligence and uh, operations. And then they would get ferried out to these launch sites. At the launch sites, there would be uh, a team there of guys that maintained the launch site, that maintained security, that worked the radios, and you know, basically uh, kept the recon teams from having to deal with any stressful things other than the mission that they were spinning up to conduct. So once at these launch sites, they would literally just kind of sit there all kitted up, waiting for the birds to spool up and out across the fence, which is into Laos uh, or into Cambodia, depending on where you're at, or even into North Vietnam, depending on where your target area was at. There would be a forward air controller called a FAC. It was either an Air Force guy or um, depending on, on it, like a CCC, uh, they used um, a small attachment of Army aviators, and they would they would troll over the target area. You don't want to. They didn't troll like exactly over the target area because you didn't want to draw unwanted attention. But they would they would circle nearby and they would kind of determine if the if the AO was hot or cold. And um, and depending on that, they would either launch the team into the target or they would decide to launch into a different area. It, it, like I said, it depended on which which command and control outfit you were you were at so operationally speaking things were slightly different but they were still
2: the same more or less right so command and control north uh mike you you guys were where in cambodia or laos
1: uh we mostly work laos except down uh, right on the border where you didn't know where the hell you were uh, we had a little uh radio relay site there uh leghorn and uh it got confusing, but our mission RAO our was primarily Laos, and uh, we had launch sites at Quangtree, Phubai, and we even had one at nKP Thailand, noncomphenom uh depending on where where the team was going in and what air sets were what air assets were required
4: and, and uh, let me just say that uh the NKP launch site uh uh other teams that were not associated with ccN could access that launch site they would they would be uh, flown up uh, in a soG blackbird which was a, a custom uh, c130 and it was all blacked out and it was highly click it contained a, a, a plethora of uh, signals intercept comms gear and all sorts of fun stuff and and they would fly the team up to NKp and they would literally offload the team in a way that no one else at the launch site could see them or at the airfield could see them until they got to the launch site because again this is we're talking about a bunch of guys uh, a handful of like two to three americans with uh, a, a, a throng of 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 uh indigenous guys with them and they're absolutely loaded to bear i mean they're armed to the teeth they're wearing funky outfits uh you know they did not look like conventional guys so um, in order to maintain that, that veil of secrecy, they would try and hustle them away from the airfield and into that controlled launch site as quickly and as uh, discreetly
1: as possible. I, I had the uh, pleasure of escorting a team when I was working out of the top down in Da Nang. We had a team uh, esc- inserting from NKP, and I got to fly over with them in a CH-53, and it was an interesting experience dropping out of Vietnam, a combat zone, into Thailand where they're at NKP. We, they joked about the Air Force. Biggest complaint was not having a uh, Olympic sized swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, that's where, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, fighter air sport came out of there. And those guys were getting shot at a lot. So uh, I don't want to detract from what they did Uh in their war effort.
2: So can we, uh, can we get into, you know, some of the type of operations that were run by SOG? Like what, what did they consist of? Uh, Mike, what, what was it like for you? And I mean, I've read a bunch of books about it and, uh, but, but I I would like the listeners, the audience and some of the, the younger generation of Americans to, to really understand the, the type of, Uh, war that you guys were fighting?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Basically, the the missions were were designed for small team. Uh, The big thing to understand is that the team leader, the one zero, had complete autonomy over whether he wanted to run the mission and if he took it, how he was going to run it. Uh, If he felt that he could do the mission best by himself and and staff went along with it, they would insert that man by himself. So uh it was very strange that way, very unregular, obviously. Uh my missions included bright lights, which uh were going in to find uh bodies or retrieve wounded. Uh bright light could also be a, a, a mission to go in and get a pilot out that might have gotten shot down. Uh, or to go in and reinforce a team that was in trouble. Uh, One of the most important missions I think we did was POW snatches, trying to get somebody out of uh, the area, uh, uh, a truck driver, anybody that had uh, good actionable intelligence. Uh, Other missions uh, might be to uh, uh, ambush uh, a convoy on the trail, or to set up targeting for B-52 strikes or other airstrikes. So mostly anything a small team of about seven men could get in and do, sneak around, cause trouble, uh, that's what we did. Uh, But it was dangerous work. My last mission, uh, uh, we were right on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, parallel with the DMZ, people who know Vietnam know how bad that area was seven man team. And after they pulled us out, they estimated there were three reinforced battalions around us. Wow. Uh, so, so you can see why sometimes stealth is better, you know, than anything else. Right. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, the biggest problem we had was when we got the intel how to get it to the regular army because we weren't supposed to know the stuff we knew. But we needed to know what the NVA, what the VC were doing in Cambodia, where they were massing. I mean, it was just ludicrous for the politicians to, to try to restrict a war to one country. Right. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, many of us now refer to Vietnam as the second
2: Indochina China war, because it did not just take place in Vietnam. Right. right. So for Correct. for those who don't know, and Jason, I'll, I'll let you expand on this. For those who don't know, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, it, it ran into uh, Cambodia or Laos? Uh, both. It came,
4: it started uh, way up in North Vietnam. And if you look at the way Vietnam is shaped, it's kind of like a dog's leg. So this was literally the quickest most direct route for the North Viets to get all of their uh, personnel their uh, equipment munitions a- everything uh, logistical support all that stuff it all came shuffling down the Ho Chi Minh trail corridor now honestly though it was a just a honeycombed just a spider web of footpaths and little uh, little you know uh, trails and, and all that kind of stuff, the, the main arteries of this trail uh, were not really trails. I mean, they were like freaking roadways, man. Right. They were <laughs> like multi-lane. I mean, in broad freaking daylight, uh, you could see truck
2: traffic going to and from, like coming to and fro. It was no joke. Uh, and, and they had, and, there was a, a, I think it was like a battalion or whatever dedicated just to repairing the road, right?
1: Uh, maybe in well, the early... Well, my, let, let Let me slide in here because that that last mission of mine uh, was one night I spent over the trail. Uh, That night we heard a 17 truck convoy go by with uh, three tracked escorts. I mean, we couldn't tell what they were, but it was obvious they were tanks. They weren't bulldozers. And this was later confirmed by Air Force uh, audio uh, surveillance. Uh, The next morning, what woke us up was a company of engineers working on the trail to repair the bomb damage from the last b-52 strike and uh uh, since our initial plan had failed they hadn't come and tried to get us the way they thought we thought they were uh we were actually planning on attacking to try to snatch one of their engineers off the road I think back now, and I and you know, it's one of those "What the heck was I thinking?" type things. But, <laughs> but it, the mission was that important to us, if you understand.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, c- but, can you guys like explain why that was important? Why the Ho Chi Minh Trail was important, and 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 because of the the political implications of decisions being made, why that um, why it kind of hampered the war fighting effort, and then why that that led to uh, recon teams having to, to you know, sneak in and 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 run those type of operations. Why was that trail so important? Um.
4: Uh. Well, the if you can maintain the element of surprise, it's all about the main, maintaining that element of surprise because we're basically it's the the, the war is uh is a, is a war without borders uh for the Viet's because they can come and go as they please. I mean, they had. Uh, the prince of, uh, or what's his name? The the Laotian prince was pretty much in in, in their back pocket, um, and, and I don't think he outrightly supported, uh, or was that the Cambodian prince? I can't recall.
1: But you're you're um, you're thinking of the Cambodian Chania, Sh- Cambodian <laughs> prince.
4: That's him. Yeah, um, yeah. He he was he he was aware that that the NBA were there and and not. Really, all that eager to do much about it, and honestly, he probably couldn't have done much about it um, because the the North Viet's were supported by um, the Chinese and the Russians yeah. and you know all those commie block nations, and so um, you know that on the face of it, you see the North Viet's, but when you pull the veil back, you've got a lot of other players back there, you know. So um, it was important because they were able to to infiltrate into pretty much anywhere into Vietnam, South Vietnam as a whole, all along this trail system. And it if you look at a map of they're always drawn uh this as a as a as a big long arrow and it just kind of swoops into the the uh into the border across the border of South Vietnam all along that 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 vertical uh border with Laos and Cambodia. And that's not uh just an illustration. That's pretty accurate. I mean, there was literally, it wasn't just one roadway dumping in. No, no, no. It was multiple areas of infiltration. So if they didn't, if they were found in one area, they would just back, back across the border, rearm, refit, regroup, and then push south or push north and find another way in. So, um, you know, it became very difficult for the U.S. to kind of stem that flood of communist um, fighters into those areas. And, you know, a lot of people think that that, um, that Vietnam, like fighting in the jungles, uh, you know, you see the enemy and you shoot the enemy. It, it's really not like that. I mean, you're talking about guys, you know, American units, uh, I won't say aimlessly because they're, uh, you know, it's my understanding that they had missions, of course. But um, a lot of these missions were just search and destroy. So they just... You know, they, they find, they, they look at a map and they say, you know, maybe they have some intelligence that points to a certain area and they they go out there and they look for them. And, um, you know, when you when you engage in combat, it's very, in, in jungle, is very, and Mike can tell you this better than I can, obviously, it, it's, you the guys you see are up close and right in your lap. And then there's only maybe one or two that you see, but you know there's so many more back there you can't see and they're all shooting. Or maybe they're not shooting. Maybe they're waiting on you to fall into a trap. So it's, it's, it's. It was not in my under
1: to my understanding. It was not an easy way to fight. Uh, John, let me let me uh, mention too that we need to contrast Vietnam with World War II. The big effort in a conventional warfare is interdiction, interdiction of supply lines, cutting communication routes. Uh, whether it be across the seas or across the land, uh, cutting bridges, bombing bridges, and sinking ships. Vietnam. Our Congress, when they let us have that police action or wherever the hell it was, restricted U.S. involvement within the the borders of South Vietnam. And and as Jason has mentioned, there are natural pathways from North Vietnam. Down through Laos and Cambodia, through for them friendly country where they had open access to bring all their supplies down. And that and, and if it weren't for the missions of MAC V Saad to stop that, it would be like if, if America were under attack and we couldn't do anything about the enemy until they landed on our shores. So it was a case of politicians just doing really stupid, ridiculous rules on a warfare. Uh, On the other side of it, though, with our involvement there, uh, with the recon teams constantly going in with our harassment along there, uh, we kept thousands of their troops tied up just waiting for us. So that gave us a slight advantage because we were the ones that could be anywhere, anytime, and they were the ones that had to be everywhere
2: all the time to catch us. Right, and I know this is something that I've read, and it was even in, I've read it in Jason's book, and then we've spoken about it afterwards. Uh, So teams would be inserted, and then they would get shot out of the, the insert area. So basically, the helicopter comes in, you know, there's a there's an area where there are no trees so where the helicopter could fit in and guys could get off the bird. But as they're coming in, there's, you know, a, a North Vietnamese unit or, a, you know, a bunch of soldiers there. And they're shooting at the Americans who are trying to enter in and they kind of get shot out. And then further in Jason's book, he illustrated how there were some issues to where the North Vietna- Vietnamese had infiltrated Certain elements of the South Vietnamese military, and because of that, at times they knew when teams were being inserted and so forth and I'm sure that caused uh enormous difficulty for you guys mike when you're when you're trying to run operations
1: well not not only that's always a possibility, especially when you're working with the joint operations and you have the Luft long duck beat working with you and and you don't know what hat they're wearing at night. That's always a possibility. Uh, and one that, uh, that, you know, you have to be uh, wary of. What What annoyed us, the guys that ran recon, were the stupid regulations that had to be followed. Recon depends on, the first thing, sneaking in. You don't want people to know you're coming. Right. Uh, we didn't have night inserts. I mean... Uh, I can give you one good example where we use Marine air support, and these were not force recon. This was just a Marine aviation unit, and and the Marines had a rule that one of their slicks couldn't go into an LZ unless flechette rounds had been fired first. So we're going in, we're making our run to come into the LZ. The next thing I know, these two damn gunships come up on each side and start firing rockets as if that isn't advertisement enough when a when a flechette round releases its flechettes it leaves a big puff of red smoke right in the sky so it was like a big night neon sign saying hey guys here they come so we had we had to use extreme measures to get on the ground and then and then the first thing was you're running like hell to try to get away from the counter recon teams who are triangulating and 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 that sort of thing. So uh, the mission that lasted very long was very unusual. Uh, Of course, early in the war, early when we operated, it was different. But as they got used to us, they were ready for us. Uh, They took their best or their only airborne company and turned them into a counter recon team that was by far better trained than we were. In, in, In Jungle Warfare. In counter recon tactics, uh, okay. and they spread them out, al- or set- spread them out along the team, specifically to come after us. So they studied us like we studied our job.
2: Right. So this this particular unit, and they were a, a highly trained unit. They were just waiting for recon teams, and and this is you know deep behind enemy lines, correct?
1: Oh, absolutely. See what. If the recon, counter-recon team, again, a small team, if they could catch up with the recon team and, and get us into a firefight and hold us down long enough, then all along the trail they had platoons in trucks stationed to reinforce the counter-recon team, not to kill us necessarily, but to keep us held down. And then they had other and, uh, aircraft weapons or whatever stationed along the trail, and later on truck-mounted that they would bring in. And they just loved using us for bait to try to knock down all the air sat, air assets because they knew our air sat, air assets, excuse me, would risk anything to get one American out of the ground off the ground. So uh, uh, it's one of the things, one of the hardest things to do as a recon one zero was to get on the phone, to get on the radio and say, hey, I need help, because you knew
2: how many men were going to put their life on the line just to get you out. So I know that there was a Medal of Honor recipient, a Special Forces medic, who, through his actions in going in to get a team out, is how he was awarded the medal. So Mike, can you get into that a little bit? Uh, sure, you're talking about Roy
1: Benavides. Uh, he was a Spec Four medic, young fellow, uh, uh, and and Roy exemplifies, I think, uh, the metal you found in the special force operatives in in SOD. Uh, he did not have to go on the mission. He he volunteered. The team was in trouble. He was a medic. He joined the Bright Light. Uh, it was one of it was a. It's hard to say it was so bad. I mean, our missions were so bad anyway, but it was just lots of wounded, lots of problems, aircraft shut down, and Roy was the kind of guy that just kept going back in and helping uh with total disregard for the fact that 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 he might not make it out himself. Uh and it should be noted that these kinds of actions uh with with special operations units it's really hard to get recogni- recognition for this kind of activity because of the military regulations that sometimes require excessive amounts of, of, uh, of eyewitness evidence of what the person has done. Uh, so Roy Benavides is a good example and, and stands to represent all the unsung heroes that, that performed like him but just never went noticed.
4: Absolutely. And you know, because of where the the action took place, uh, it became difficult for the military to award him that uh, that medal because of you know where it was taking place because we weren't supposed to be there
2: right I, I think on the uh, on the citation, I think it, it was listed that this action took place in North Vietnam, if, if I'm not mistaken.
4: I, I honestly have not read uh, word for word the citation, and it's been a while I've read it, but it's been a while. Uh, but the the action itself took place in Cambodia.
2: Right, right. And he he didn't he wasn't awarded this medal till what somewhere sometime during the nineteen eighties, right?
4: Yes, that's correct. Uh, I some people argue that he had people campaigning for him. I don't believe that's true whatsoever. Um, he. He was in touch with some people. I think one of them was a newspaper, a local newspaper reporter, in uh, I believe somewhere in Texas, which is where he was living at the time. And um, they got a hold of his citation and the story and all that kind of stuff. And and they, I guess, again, I don't like the word campaign. I don't think that's very fair at all because what the man did, he did with absolute disregard for any kind of fruit salad you could pin to his chest. I mean, Mike knows these type of men. He served with these men. And um, so I I will not use the word campaign, but um, I believe they kind of brought light to the to the actions again. And when people really started to sit down and interview some of the people that were on the ground that did survive, that were a part of the recon team, people that were on the aircraft, uh, the the multiple aircraft that went into the area, uh, they all unanimously unanimously agreed uh, that that the actions that Roy had had done that day for those men uh, were above and beyond.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I remember I read uh, Eric Blim's book called Legend, which is about uh, the the actions that day and, and the story of Roy, you know, when he entered the military and leading up to that day. And it was just like out of this world, you know, the, the teams are completely surrounded. They're getting shot up every one of them was wounded and some of them were people that Roy had known and served with and he just you know he jumps off the helicopter runs directly into the thick of it and you know had an an, an untold amount of wounds you know he's getting shot and X Y, and and then he ended up getting some of the guys out so yeah yeah. he did uh, I don't mean to cut you off
4: there John um he, he he did uh he was wounded multiple times I forget exactly how many times um and on the flight back uh when they when they extracted the team, they finally got got everyone out that they could get out because there were a couple of indigenous uh, guys that were that were that were killed in action that they could not retrieve uh when when he finally got back to the launch site, they thought Roy was dead, and someone recognized him because he was so it just i mean he was glazed over with everyone's blood and I mean just you know was just torn to shreds and they thought he was dead and and uh, a friend of his recognized him and said hold up that's roy and literally um the medic leaned over to take a pulse to to check his vitals and all he, roy could do at that point was spit in the guy's face just to let him know that he wasn't <laughs> dead because yeah because he had he was just piled with bodies just everywhere they actually he actually extracted two north vietnamese dead north vietnamese troops because he wasn't sure if they were with the team or if they were enemy, and that just goes to show his dedication uh to getting those men out and getting them back and um and and they thought that he had died, and they were literally zipping him up in a rubber bag and and I believe he was conscious of this going on, and when they leaned over to check his vials, he he had to spit in the guy's face to let him know because he couldn't speak, of course, uh just an incredible story man and I mean, sog is full. Of stories like that, you know, it just, I mean, another one is, uh, is, um, uh, uh, Robert Robert L. Howard, Colonel, uh, Colonel Bob (laughs) Howard. And this man was submitted for the medal three
1: times. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, just amazing. And, and, and let's not forget the rest of the troops too. I've seen dust off pilots and guys flying slicks coming in, uh, fire all around them and they are so focused and you know and and the co-pilot next to them's head can come off and they just they stay on track uh i mean nobody should forget the bravery of of the slicks and, and the dust off pilots in vietnam absolutely
2: yeah i mean yeah. i wouldn't be here today if it were for these guys so you know like I can't they whenever you guys got in trouble they were they had to you know they were the 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 backup like they had to come in under fire either drop guys off or or stay there long enough so that the team can extract while you know they they're getting shot at from 360 degrees i mean it's just crazy
1: well well that's the concept of the team effort you know recon guys would be less likely to go in if they thought the air crews weren't going to come and get them if they got in trouble so it's it's a symbiotic relationship, everybody doing their job and working together and, and 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 being able to trust these guys. I mean, it you know, we were soldiers that the, the pilot that that kept coming back there against orders, uh, dedication above all else to your fellow soldier.
2: So, Mike, can you can you give the audience uh, something that stands out to you? Something that happened on a mission or an operation somewhere while you were running recon. And can you share that with the audience?
1: Uh, Sure, John. Uh, But actually, you know, what I'd like to say is that in special forces, we got to work with the Vietnamese. Getting shot at is getting shot at. Having hand grenades thrown at you is the same. I would like to say that my greatest memories from Vietnam are working with some really fine Vietnamese people, some fine Vietnamese officers, and and it it for me made Vietnam looking back more fun than fear. Now, uh, uh, one one example would be when we got some of that uh, uh, pop in the pan popcorn in a care package, and we gave it to our Vietnamese cook cookie to pop the popcorn for us. And he didn't know about those little shaky pans we used to get. And uh, we heard Cookie back in the back in the team rooms cussing and swearing. And I went back there, and there's Cookie with one of those great big stew pots. And he had dumped the popcorn in there, and he had his arm down there trying to make popcorn for us by stirring it up so it wouldn't burn. Uh, My heart bleeds for the people, these good people, we abandoned. Uh, let's not always dwell on the combat. Right. Is that okay?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I guess we can have uh, my friend Tu Lam from Rona Tactics on with you in a future episode. And Tu is actually Vietnamese. And after the fall of Saigon, when the North uh, took over the South – choose family a lot of his family were educated and some of them served in the military mm-hmm. and they were like brutally executed in front of him and him his mother and his brother managed to escape and and then they you know for a couple of weeks they were out at sea and and eventually they made it to the states and then his mother remarried a, a special forces officer mm-hmm. And and then two went on to serve for, you know, 22 years in the army and 20 of those years were in special operations. So I think it would be very interesting to have you and two on and you guys can kind of have a discussion. I'd love it. Absolutely.
4: That would be awesome. Uh, Can I just say I have nothing to add to that conversation between those two, but I'd just like to sit here and listen to it
1: (laughs) (laughs) because it would be amazing. Yeah, I've got a a good friend. Uh, He's a retired Navy captain now. I met him as a a lieutenant commander. Uh, He was on one of the boats there off the shore in in Saigon. And to sit and listen to his story, you know, from from being an officer on the deck is just totally amazing.
2: Wow. Yeah, and, and are you talking about how, like, the people were escaping? And and that they were just like on uh, these boats drifting. Is that what you mean?
1: Uh, yeah, and the you know pushing the choppers off the decks and the panic and the people they had to leave behind and and the fact that uh, some of them disobeyed orders so that they could save more people. I mean, uh, you know, it's it. Well, I don't have to tell you guys this. It's one one thing to see the the news clips. Another thing to stand there with a man and talk to him about being there.
2: Right. Wow. Well, yeah okay so we're gonna conclude this interview and it was great having both of you guys on and i hope that the the audience can take away from this interview and and really kind of get a small glimpse into what uh running recon was like in vietnam and and we're gonna have several episodes dedicated to the subject so mike i'll hand it over to you and you can kind of close out Uh, Yeah,
1: John, I want to absolutely thank you for having me on. These are issues that are obviously dear to my heart. I would like to encourage your viewers to read Jason's book because it is one of the most readable books about what we did in SOG that I've ever come across. And I would certainly like to get with you again sometime, sometime John, to talk about the VA and PTSD issues Uh, since I do have a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and have worked somewhat extensively with this and am terribly upset at the way the VA is letting our our returning troops down and our old veterans. Uh, So uh, again,
2: thanks for having me on and I hope to see and talk to you and Jason again very soon. Sure. So Jason, can you just uh, give us a a drop for your book?
4: Yeah. um, The book is, again, the title is, uh, is, Ah, uh, gentle propositions, and you can find it on Amazon.com. Uh, just type in "gentle propositions" and it'll pop right up. Uh, paperback and uh, Kindle, and I'm also working to get uh, it on uh, Audible. So uh, it, it's something that uh, I haven't quite learned all the ins and outs, but I'm working on it, and
2: I am working on the sequel as we speak. Nice. I, I can't wait for that. And I, I actually, I read your, I read the book on Kindle, and. I'm looking forward to reading your next book. So what I'll do for the listeners on the podcast notes, which we, we have these at the end on my website after each episode. And we post the social media handles and the, the websites or any point of contact for the guests who are on the, the episode. And I'll post a link there for anyone who wants to just get it directly on the, on the website.
4: Great. Great. Thank you. And again, I want to let everyone know that there is an extensive glossary in the back of the book. So if you get tripped up with some of the uh, terms and the uh, the phrases and all that kind of stuff, you can find that stuff in the back. Don't freak out. And you have uh, you need no uh, prior knowledge about the subject. So you can just jump right in.
2: Nice. All right, guys. Uh, we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days.
4: All right. Sure thing, John. Thanks. Thank you both.
0: Thank you. Bye.
2: Bye. Uh, what an inspira- inspirational
0: story uh, that John had with with Mike Stahl. Like I said, those guys. You know, I had a I had a buddy who was who was killed in a in a tragic accident in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. His name was uh, Stephen Walker Booth. Uh, Walker was a sniper reconnaissance team sergeant, but his father was a Mac v. Saw guy, and his granddad was actually an Office of Strategic Services guy, an OSS guy. Um, so he 's like a he you know basically a fourth generation uh, or a third generation uh, a green beret or special operations guy, but his dad was a reconnaissance team leader for I believe rookie team Maine, and uh, the impact that he had on me living through his dad uh, and understanding the history of the studies and observation group and and what Mac V saw along with all the other elements that work with mike Stahl 's elements including the helicopter pilots, as, as was described, and the, uh, uh, the strike, might Force strike teams that operated with them uh, was quite impressive. And just like now today on the front lines at the tip of the spear, uh, we call it joint task force. This joint task force that exists that are going after ISIS and really leading the way in clandestine and covert operations against uh, terrorists across the world. In a way, or you know, factually, the study and observation group (SOG) was doing that during Vietnam and had a big role in kind of maintaining the stability of killing and capturing bad guys, and and you know, through sabotage and and subversion, were able to defeat the enemy without a lot of people understanding what was going on in the country in direct action operations against um, the v- Viet Cong. So thank you for uh to, to Mike Stahl for his service and everything that his guys have done, leading the way and then obviously mentoring guys like me and two um, to to be the next generation of warriors and then hope hopefully, hopefully inspiring you guys through the Global Recon podcast to, you know, seek further education on SOG and we hope to have those guys on and you know crew I think we're having John, uh, future um, helicopter pilots that were involved with that those operations, um, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I'll pass it over to you, John, and uh, we
2: can close it out. Yeah, it was an awesome interview, and you know, I myself had read a couple of MacVie Sog books from Vietnam, and after reading it, I just it was just like I couldn't believe uh, some of the missions that these guys uh, came out of. Because a, a lot of it was them, you know, six seven man team just being com- in the middle of an you know NBA battalion in the middle of the jungle, um, so you, you can imagine how intense that is. And well, we we will uh, at the end of the episode, I'm sorry, at, on the podcast notes on my website, which we put up after every single episode, we're gonna put up some links for. Some different uh, Mac v. Sog books that you can check out and, and you can hear these stories for yourself or read these stories for yourself. Okay, so for anybody who would like to contribute or reach out to the Rucking Raiders uh, on Instagram, their handle is Rucking Raiders and their website is Marine com. They have contact information on there for anyone who's interested. For my friend Jason Economos, who wrote a very uh, good book on Mac V. Sog, which Mike Stahl uh, contributed to, you can find him on Instagram at J.S. Economos. So that's J.S.E.C.O.N.O.M.O.S. And the name of Jason's book is Gentle Propositions. You can find it on Amazon.com. I recommend you uh, get a copy. It's a very good book. And Mike Stahl's website is trickymisfit.com. That's T-R-I-C-K-Y, misfit.com. And there's also contact information on there and Mike's bio as well. Mike Glover's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Instagram is softsurvivor. His Facebook is fieldcraftllc, and his Twitter is ig igsoftsurvivor. My website is globalrecon.net. My Instagram and Twitter is the same handle, it's IG Recon. And my Facebook is FB Recon. Once again, for those who want to opt into the, the paid webinar that we're going to host uh, in the near future, send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And in the subject line, just put webinar. And from there, we will contact you and give you further information about it. So, as always, we appreciate the support that we're getting from the veteran community, from the non-veteran community, and everyone who's leaving us ratings on iTunes, downloading, subscribing. We encourage you to continue to do so so we can remain at the top of the iTunes charts, and that helps us put out a better show for you guys. So, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another great episode. And until so then, peace.